are listening to True Crime Twins, a true crime podcast hosted by Chloe and Melina Cantor. True Crime Twins is distributed by Glassbox Media and is part of the Crawlspace Media family. On December 14, 2012, a 20-year-old gunman stormed Sandy Hook Elementary School in Newtown, Connecticut. He killed 20 students and six female school employees. I will only name the gunman once, Adam Lanza. He lived in Newtown for most of his life. He went to Sandy Hook Elementary School. He was diagnosed with Asperger's and an extreme anxiety disorder growing up. He had a lot of social deficits, but was considered to be average, if not above average, in school. His parents, Peter and Nancy Lanza, were very successful people. Peter was so successful that Nancy did not have to work. And even when they were divorced, she got a pretty hefty alimony, even when her son, the shooter, was over 18, which more than supported all of them. The shooter hadn't spoken to his father in about two years before the shooting. Same thing with his brother. His older brother, Ryan, was also shunned by the shooter. The only person who the shooter really spoke to was his mother, Nancy. They lived together in this huge house in this affluent area. They were kind of isolated from everyone and everything. Nancy took the role as the shooter's primary caregiver and caretaker because of his severe social disability and probable inability to ever live a functional, independent life on his own. The shooter did not work, and he was not attending school at the time. He would spend most of his time either holed up in his room on the computer doing God knows what. We know what it was at the time. He was basically researching shootings and making spreadsheets, but his mother seemed to not be aware of this. When he wasn't doing that, he was obsessively cleaning. He would change his socks like 20 times a day. He would make his mom wash all of his things all of the time. Basically, she was his hostage, for lack of a better term, and her life was all about him. Basically, she just had to do everything that would prevent a meltdown from him. I know that she technically didn't have to do anything, but I think that in her mind, Nancy was really trying to do her best. She was stuck with this sort of impossible situation of this adult son who relied on her for everything. He's certainly not making money. He's certainly not contributing in any other way. He's basically just living under her roof. And towards the last couple of months of their lives, he would only email her. He wouldn't even speak to her, this person who was doing everything for him. And he even wrote some sort of journal entry called Selfish about how women were inherently selfish, which is just absolutely hilarious to me. But that's really not the point. But it is ironic that the people that he killed were children, female educators, and his mother and himself. So when the shooter wasn't holed up in his room with basically sheets covering the windows with no sunlight coming in, he would drive to a local movie theater and play Dance Dance Revolution for hours on end. He was known as the DDR guy or the Dance Dance Revolution guy. You can look at videos of the shooter doing this and he moves robotically and he's so skinny and he's wearing these baggy clothes and at a certain moment he turns around and you can see his pale 
ghost-like face. And it's just odd that this is the way that he's spending his time. He apparently made friends with another local young man who would also play. And I guess they had like a semi sort of normal acquaintanceship. This person did say that the shooter would be intensely sweaty, like dripping in sweat, and that he didn't seem to mind. He definitely seemed to have some sort of sensory issue. Apparently, when he was a child, Nancy reported to his school that if he were hurt, that he may not necessarily verbalize it. So I think that there's definitely some sort of disconnect because it is odd. I used to play DDR all the time. Like instead of having a life in middle and high school, I would just play DDR at home. It's a lot of exercise. You will get winded. You will get sweaty. You need to take breaks. But apparently he would just play for hours and hours and hours like this regimented robotic type of situation. It just gives me the creeps when I think about it. I'm not really sure why. But that's basically what he did with his time besides planning this horrific school shooting that still shocks me to this day when I think about it. I'll never forget the morning that it happened. I was working at a little grocery store in a town called Weston, which is really close to Newtown where the shooting occurred. It was probably not even 10 a.m., but we always had the radio on. We always had 95.9 The Fox on for people that are local to Fairfield County. They know what that is. But all of a sudden, these reports started coming in of a shooting at a school. And first they were saying it was a high school. And then they were basically just saying all these different things, the, the injuries and the fatalities that just kept changing. But basically what seemed to be clear was that it was really, really bad from very early on the initial reports. It was just like a devastating massacre. One by one, customers would come in and they had heard their own thing from their own car radios or from whatever source they had locally, cop friends, EMTs. They were just like, this is as worse as it gets. I don't believe this. And they were right. And I remember I I couldn't believe it. And I know people who about it, knew the family of the shooter. I know people who lost family members, children. Like it's it's sick. And it makes me sick just talking about it and just thinking about it. And it's really hard for me to talk about, but the 10-year anniversary is coming up and it still doesn't feel real. Here's what happened. On the morning of December 14th, for unknown reasons, the shooter murdered his own mother, Nancy Lanza, as she slept in her bed. He shot her four times in the forehead. He proceeded to arm himself with several other weapons and he drove to the school. It is reported that he may have been casing Newtown High School at first, but he ended up at Sandy Hook Elementary School. He shot a window out, which basically would take somebody into the main area of the school, like the main entrance. So even before this happened, people were locking the doors of schools when school was in session. He shot out the glass window and entered the school that way. There was a faculty meeting going on not too far away from this that included the school principal, the school psychologist, and the lead teacher. 47-year-old school principal Don Hawksprung, 56-year-old school psychologist Mary Sherlock, and lead teacher 40-year-old Natalie Hammond ran out of the conference room they were in when they heard the gunshots. One of the ladies yelled, shooter, stay put. The three women unarmed were face-to-face with this heavily armed evil man, and they charged him. 
because it was obvious that that was the thing to do because they were protecting these children and they didn't care about themselves. All that matters were these children that they dedicated their lives to protect. He gunned down these women, killed Mary Sherlock and Don Hawksprung, and wounded Natalie Hammond. Natalie army crawled back into the conference room, wounded. The shooter proceeded to go into the main office where the intercom stayed on throughout the whole shooting. So people were warned, but even with that warning, he moved so quickly that nobody really stood a chance. The school nurse saw the shooter's feet as she hid under her desk. She sat there paralyzed in fear as he stopped, looked around, and then left. Multiple 911 calls were already coming through because this was just a war zone by this point, and I don't think even a minute had passed. School custodian Rick Thorne was basically on the phone with 911 the entire time. He was running up and down the hallways, basically warning people and risking his own life like these women to save these kids. And I do believe that his bravery did just that. He really led people out of harm's way and he provided the 911 operators with very detailed reports of what was going on. When the shooter left the main office, he ended up entering two classrooms, room eight. The teacher in room eight was a substitute teacher named Lauren Russo. There was a behavioral aide in the classroom also named Rachel Diavino. When hearing the gunshots, the two adults were desperately trying to herd the children into one tiny little bathroom in the back of the classroom. When the shooter entered the classroom, the kids were basically stacked on top of each other. Basically, the police described it like sardines in a can. They were just stacked on top of each other. Lauren Russo systematically put each of them in the bathroom so they could fit. This is 15 kids. And then she turned around to lock the door and then boom, there he was. She was killed. Rachel Diavino was killed. And all 15 children who were shot multiple times each were killed. I read the police reports, the official set of documents that was released by the Connecticut State Police pretty extensively. And what these first responders described, they weren't even sure what they were looking at when they responded to that classroom. They thought that they were in an art room and that in the bathroom was red paint on the walls and a pile of used smocks. At first, they were trying to pull the kids out and try to save them. One of them was sent to the hospital and was later declared dead, but they really had no chance, even with this amazingly quick response time. The police were inside of the school in less than five minutes of the start of the shooting. And now, a quick word from our sponsors. Thanks for listening to our sponsors. Now back to the show. After he exited room eight, he went into room 10. The teacher of that room was Victoria Lee Soto. Miss Soto was not the only adult in the room. There was a special education teacher named Anne Marie Murphy who was there specifically to be an aide for one of the victims, six-year-old Dylan Hockley. Her body was found draped over the dead body of the very boy that she was there to help. She could not save him, but she tried. It's unclear exactly the sequence of what happened in room 10. Initial reports stated that 
Miss Soto and the shooter exchanged words and that she was trying to get him to leave by saying that the kids were in the auditorium. It's unclear exactly what happened. Some people say that no words were exchanged at all. Some of the children that were hiding in cabinets and behind whatever they could find in there, they tried to run away because they were scared and they were shot as a result. At a certain point, either the shooter needed to reload his gun or there was a malfunction, it jammed or something. One of the children, Jesse Lewis, screamed at the kids to run at this moment because it was three seconds where there wasn't just constant gunfire. That poor boy saved lives and he lost his nine children were able to escape the classroom. Two were found hiding in the bathroom. Five of them were killed. The final shot occurred at 9.40 a.m., five minutes after the shooting began at 9.35. The shooter shot himself in the head and laid in classroom 10 with the innocent lives that he stole. Initial reports named the shooter as Ryan Lanza, the shooter's brother. It was almost like a final FU because obviously the SWAT came down on this poor kid who is just trying to live his life. By all accounts, Ryan was just like a really nice kid with no issues, never did anything wrong to anybody, he was just like, you know, living his life. And then all of a sudden, boom, he's at work and he sees on the news that he shot up in elementary school and that the shooter is dead. And then he tries to go home and his apartment is surrounded by cops. And he basically was just like, it wasn't me. He put his hands up and they took him away. He had to find out that not only was his mother and his brother dead, but his brother killed his mother and 20 children and six faculty members. I can't imagine what his life is like. We tried to reach out to him and understandably, he never responded. I think that he'll probably spend the rest of his life trying to recover from this. Lots of anger and blame was targeted towards Nancy Lanza, and she wasn't there to defend herself. And I get it. She was the sole caretaker for her son. And people blamed the dad, too, because they were like, where was he? You know, he was living in Stamford, and that's a bit of a ways from Newtown, probably like an hour drive-ish. But the shooter stopped responding to his dad. And I don't really know how much more he could have done, especially because he was 20 years old. And you can't really force anybody to do anything that they don't want to do ever. But if they're under 18 and living under your roof, then it's a little bit easier. But basically, I think that he was just too passive and didn't fight hard enough. And I think that Nancy, I think that at this point, even though they were divorced, they had like a pretty amicable relationship, especially regarding their troubled son. And I think that Nancy at times sort of sided with the shooter and was basically just like, he he refuses, he won't do it. I'm sorry, there's something I can do. What really needed to be done, they needed some sort of interventionist. He needed serious treatment. It's not normal to be in a house with your, it, it's fine. Plenty of adult live with their parents especially young adults especially nowadays but it's not normal for them to behave the way that he was behaving not even talking to his mom who does everything for him like that's just crazy to me and basically I know that he had Asperger's autism spectrum now but at the time it was Asperger's I know that they're very regimented and that you need to sort of make compromises and meet them where they're at try your best to sort of be reasonable but also not cater to them but you do have to keep in mind that there are certain things that you can do to avoid 
tantrums and freakouts and huge setbacks. They need routine. So I guess if the routine was this man bossing around his mom, making her do his laundry and his cooking and probably most of his cleaning also and demanding that she stay out of his room, not even speaking to her at the end. Apparently in one of her emails, she was talking about her relationship with her son and she reported that she had asked if anything had happened to her or if anything were to happen to her, if he would feel bad. And he said, no, that's enough of a red flag for me to want to try to get some help. He needed inpatient treatment. And I get that it's like, you can't displace this kid. He's going to have a complete meltdown and possibly even regress if he's in like a dingy, disgusting inpatient setting compared to this palace that he's used to living in. But there are plenty of people on the autism spectrum that don't have all of the luxuries that he did. He was spoiled. That's just the way it is. Most people are spoiled from that area. It's just the way it is. But I think that Nancy had the best of intentions, but she really went about things the wrong way. She kind of let him walk all over her. I think that it became easier to do that than to try to fight him on certain things. And apparently he had some psychiatric encounters in the past and that he had tried an antidepressant. And then the next day he was just sweating profusely and shaking and could barely even talk. So Nancy was basically like, hell no, we're not doing this anymore. But it's just such a disservice because like I get people can have bad reactions to medications and that certain psych meds can be scary to think about taking. And I bet she didn't want to believe that her son needed to be doing this. But to give her credit, she did try, but he just didn't give it a chance. He wasn't willing to try anything else. And I think she was just like, nope, this is it. They got an Asperger's diagnosis and they were just like, okay, great. We're just going to focus on the fact that he's probably a savant and that he's probably a genius, but he wasn't. He was normal intelligence. Like I said, he wasn't a genius. That's just like a stereotype. Some people on the spectrum do have some really amazing skills, but I don't I just don't think that he was one of them. I think that he was of normal intelligence and they put all the stress on his education instead of his mental health. They really didn't get it. And sure, he was secretive, but like there certainly were major, major signs that there was a lot more help that he needed that he just was not getting. And I think people were just used to him being odd, but it was more than just odd. There was just this horrible darkness. This home that Nancy built became a prison. And she tried to bond with him with guns. She bonded with her son by getting guns and going to shooting ranges. And she gave him money one Christmas to buy a gun. It's a thing, I guess, to bond with somebody on the spectrum with a mutual interest. More than anything, I wish that I could have gone back in time and done something. Like, he needed to be sectioned current events with Alex Jones basically losing his fortune because he was sued by Sandy Hook families for the lies that he perpetuated. And he acknowledged knowing that they were lies, basically that the whole thing was a hoax. And I hate even saying this because like it just it makes me sick that anybody could have ever believed that, that anybody would try to make that up for some sort of political agenda. It's fear mongering and it's absolutely insane and idiotic and ridiculous. And obviously Alex Jones knew that. And he knew that he had this audience that would just kind of glom onto him and every word that he said, and it made him millions. And I hope that he loses all of it. He 
multiplied this devastation and suffering that these families are sentenced to life with. December 14th of this year will mark the 10-year anniversary of the Sandy Hook shooting. The victims at the school, six-year-old Charlotte Bacon, seven-year-old Daniel Barden, six-year-old Olivia Engel, seven-year-old Josephine Gay, six-year-old Dylan Hockley, six-year-old Madeline Sue, six-year-old Catherine Hubbard, seven-year-old Chase Kowalski, six-year-old Jesse Lewis, six-year-old Anna Marquez Green, six-year-old James Mattioli, seven-year-old Grace McDonald, six-year-old Amelie Parker, six-year-old Jack Pinto, six-year-old Noah Posner, six-year-old Caroline Previti, six-year-old Jessica Ricos, six-year-old Aviel Richmond, six-year-old Benjamin Wheeler, six-year-old Allison Wyatt, 29-year-old Rachel Diavino, 47-year-old Don Hawksprung, 52-year-old Anne-Marie Murphy, 30-year-old Lauren Russo, 56-year-old Mary Sherlock, 27-year-old Victoria Lee Soto. The victims are so far beyond those names that I just read because each of those people have dozens and dozens, if not hundreds, if not thousands of people linked to them that miss them every single second of every day. 